Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So that is this Wednesday night. Ash Wednesday is uh, this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. Ash Wednesday, if you have never been a part of that special service, it is one of the most moving services that we do. Uh, So I'm going to invite everyone who is worshiping here uh, in the sanctuary, in the Family Life Center, the rest of our extended family watching elsewhere, wherever you may be traveling. I want to invite you to do two things. Number one, be here Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. It begins the season of Lent, a 40-day journey between now and Easter Sunday. And it begins with Ash Wednesday, and I hope you'll join us. The second thing I want you to do is turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10 as we prepare for the next uh, part of our ongoing study in this amazing uh, sacred work, uh, the book of Leviticus. We read from chapter 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. The word of the Lord. (laughs) The word which is reliable. The word which is trustworthy. The word that at our core is distorted. Now may God add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. It's this kind of story that causes problems when people approach the Scriptures. Because if we only take the Bible for what it says at surface face value, well, we're in trouble in a bunch of places. I've said along the way, especially in the book of Leviticus, but all over the Bible, it's not about only what the Bible says. But to be good students of Scripture, it's about understanding not just what it says, but what it does in the lives of those who hear what it says. So this kind of story here, you know, the kind of story where somebody doing their job Two priests doing their job. They step out of line and, and kind of blow it. They, they break the rules. They kind of blow it. And, and God consumes them in a ball of fire. It's that kind of story that if you're an unbeliever, keeps you unbelieving if you take it at surface level. 
It's that kind of story, the, the story of a God who would strike down someone who steps out of line, that if you are a believer, <clears throat> keeps this kind of story at a distance from you, reinforcing your assumption that there's nothing redemptive in Hebrew Scripture, nothing especially in Leviticus. But I am telling you, my brothers and sisters, you can't take the Bible just literally. The Bible is better than that. You take it seriously, which means that you and I must dig in and do the hard but worthy work of understanding what is underneath these stories. It's not just what the Bible says. It's what the Bible does with what the Bible says. So, this morning I am fully aware that there is somebody here on campus who you showed up today and you know for all the reasons that maybe only you know you're close to a boundary line. Maybe a little bit like Nadab and Abihu. You're close to a boundary line and, and even if you haven't crossed the boundary, your toes are pretty close and they're hanging over the edge. Or maybe there's somebody tuning in and, and you've got one foot on one side of the boundary and one foot on the other and, and you hear a story like this about how God reacts to those who break the rules and it fills you with more anxiety than peace. I am asking you to go with me to Leviticus because if we dig down deep, you may hear news that is more glorious than you ever imagined. So today I want us to talk about a couple of things because there is much at stake. Is this life only intended to be walked in a narrow line and the very first time we step out of line, it's over? Or is there grace for the journey? Today I want to talk about two or three things. Today I want to talk about biblical weirdness. Can we talk about a little biblical weirdness? And then after that I think we need to talk a little bit about strange fire and then we're gonna we're gonna end with the universal pattern of grace biblical weirdness strange fire and the universal pattern of grace let's bow together God as we approach your holy word as we approach the gospel according to your first testament. We pray that in some way you would ready the minds and hearts of all we who are tuned in. Lord, maybe now is a good time for a confession. We confess to you that most of our days and weeks and hours and moments are crammed with so much distraction that we barely recognize your holy presence and your divine action. We barely recognize it because we crowd you out, but not right now. For just a few shared moments, we, we pray that your spirit would so move in and among your worshipers wherever we are gathered so that we might actually open up the heart and your spirit may actually transform it in such a way that we see life and do life different than we ever have. Free somebody today by what we hear in your sacred word. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Biblical 
weirdness. Let's just admit it. There are weird parts in the Bible. There just are. It doesn't make the Bible any less inspired. It doesn't make the Bible any less authoritative. It doesn't mean that we can in any less way yield our lives before its authority. But it's got some weird stuff in it. I mean, not just here in Leviticus, but all over the place. Like in 2 Samuel, uh, the story about the bad hair day. You know, so the king has a son, Absalom, and he has this big coiffure. He's got this big hairdo. And everybody knows his, his beautiful hair is such a big deal that every year when he gets his hair cut, they actually, they actually measure it and they weigh it. He's got this big, it's got like 1980s hair band hair. Big hair. And he's running from his father because they're at war. And he goes by, he's on horseback, and he goes by this low-lying branch and it gets stuck in his hair. And he's dangling there, kind of like the guy in the super glue commercial, you know, with his feet hanging until his enemies catch up and kill him. Well, that's weird. If we only take it at a surface level. Or, or what about the story in, in second, uh, second Samuel about uh, male pattern baldness? And now I'm about to walk on people's toes, aren't I? Now I'm going to meddling, having a... The story about Elisha the prophet and he's going bald and these, these teenage boys come out and make fun of him and literally call him baldy. And he literally called him baldy and he cries out, he prays to the Lord. The Lord answers his prayer and God, that's what the text says, God sends two bears and the bears maul 40 teenagers. Weird. If you only take it at face value. Or what about the story about like the super species in Genesis 6 where the sons of God mix with the daughters of man and create these giants, these, these super creatures that nobody understands and understands what they come from, who, who they are. It's just weird. Or, or, or maybe one of my favorite, the story of the left-handed judge. In the book of Judges, there's this judge, Ehud. And he's a left-handed uh, judge. And so if you're left-handed, you, you draw your sword from the right. So he goes in to see this king that he wants to kill. And, and they frisk him, but they only frisk his left side, because that's where right-handers draw from. So he, he's safe. He goes in, and he, he requests a private audience with the king. And when nobody's looking, he draws his sword and stabs the king, who the text says was a robust man, big belly. And the sword goes so far in that his entire hand, all the way up to the hilt and past, is swallowed by the stomach and is stuck. And so he has to leave it completely swallowed up by this guy's big gut, and he, and he escapes Meanwhile, because it disemboweled the king, those who are outside, his officials, they don't disturb him because they just assume that he's going to the restroom. Weird. And it's not just the Old Testament filled with these amazing stories that if you take them on surface level, they seem a little weird. But in the New Testament, like the story of the, of the long sermon. Watch it. Now, you know, in Acts, the book of Acts, Paul is preaching this long sermon, and he goes on and on. I know that you don't know anything about that, but believe me, in some places, preachers just drone on and on and on. And there's this kid sitting in the window watching the sermon, and he falls asleep. I know you don't know anything about that either. But the kid falls asleep, and he falls out of this window and breaks his neck and dies. And then Paul has to go and revive him and bring him back to life, which is a lesson. Don't ever fall asleep during a sermon. 
Weird stories that on the surface, if you only take them at face value, may keep you at an arm's distance from the sacred word. But if you dig deeper, don't forget, it's not just about what the Bible says. It's about what does this story do in the life of those who hear what it says. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about what I called quantum leaps That the Bible will do something in a story that sounds so primitive to us, but it was actually a step forward for them. Like when Moses was talking about divorce in in Deuteronomy. And he says, look, you could divorce your wife even if she burns the toast in the morning. That's good grounds for divorce. That's true. Literally, if you can burn the toast in the morning, you can divorce your wife, according to Moses. But Moses said, if you're going to do that, give her a certificate of divorce. Which, to our Modern ears, we listen to that and say, that's so primitive. How in the world is it? Where's the good news in that? Until you remember that Moses' neighbors could also divorce their wife for burning the toast. But Moses said, let's drag this thing forward. Give her a certificate so that she has a future with hope. She can remarry and not be treated as a throwaway. Suddenly, if you pay attention not to what it says, but to what it's doing, it opens up. New possibilities. So Jesus, many generations later, is actually quoting Moses and says, look, let's talk about divorce. Don't get divorced unless he or she cheats on you. And we, to our modern ears, say, well, gosh, aren't there other reasons to consider the possibility that this isn't going to work, Jesus? What Jesus was doing was saying, look, you have heard it said, Moses said, you can have a divorce if you give a certificate of divorce. But by the time Jesus got around to it, Men were giving certificates for any reason at all, and women were still treated like throwaways. So Jesus said, let's even make this firmer. Let's even make this more difficult. Jesus was the greatest advocate for women's rights that we will ever meet. So in other words, there is is this movement forward. So if you pay attention to what the text is doing, and not just what it says, the weirdness begins to dissolve, and the beauty begins to emerge. So, what's going on in this story? So, Nadab and Abihu, they're priests. And and they are priests because this is a group of ex-slaves. Just 11 months before, they were slaves in Egypt. And God, through the book of Leviticus, is attempting to create order from their chaotic lives. So out of disorder and chaos, God is giving them rituals and routines and rhythms by which to live. And if you follow them precisely with exact detail, then there can be a new way to live, a new order, a new pathway, a new way of life that keeps you free. And these two guys come forward and they, on the first day, the very first day, they they step out of bounds and they don't do exactly what God ask for and you and I in our modern ears will hear that as primitive well good grief lighten up I mean they're doing their job they just didn't do it exactly precisely like you wanted them to do it precision means everything to this God this text is introducing a God for whom precision means everything because this God knows that if you have been enslaved you can't just make this thing up as you go If anything has ever bound you, truly bound you, you can't just wake up and see where the wind takes you. You need firm, exact, precise steps. One podcast I was listening to, the guy said, look, 
as a recovering alcoholic, I am one drink away from total destruction. I've been clean for X number of days, X number of months, X number of years, but I know one drink will make me spiral into absolute destruction. So I have to pay close attention to every single thing I do. I have to pay attention to all the environmental factors and triggers that might put me on a pathway to self-destruction. I got to pay attention uh, to who I hang out with and what restaurants I go to eat at. I have to pay attention to what kind of foods I eat because there are triggers that make me want to do the thing that can destroy me. So walking this tight line, this, this tight line is not just about strict obedience. It's about staying free from the thing that used to bind me. So we have to embrace something of the weirdness of this text where God comes and and these two guys step out of line and then they're dead. we got to embrace the weirdness of it because it's the weirdness that opens up the text big enough for you and me to fall into it. And in falling into this text, beloved sisters and brothers, we find ourselves in it because I don't know a single person in this church and I don't know a single person on this planet who couldn't use a little boundary keeping in their lives. So we need to tune our ears to the experience of Nadab and Abihu. And in the weirdness of the text, let's move into a new realm. Let's go deeper into the story with what I want to call strange fire. So the first verse that begins chapter 10, we read it a moment ago. I just want you to hear it again. Verse 1 reads, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, they carry the incense, and they put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to his command. Unauthorized Fire. This was part of the job of the priest was to carry the censers that had, um, that had incense in them. As part of worship, there's explicit directions given at the end of Exodus and all through Leviticus about how it works and where you put it and where you place it. And so they were just doing their job, but there's a key phrase in the first verse that indicates something is amiss. They offered what the text called unauthorized fire. Now, many translations, maybe even your translation, has a different interpretation of that word. The word is translated strange fire. Strange fire. What was so strange about it? What was the violation here? What was the big crime? I mean, in order to burn the incense, you need fire, and who cares where you get it? Well, apparently, it matters to this particular God. I mean, did they, did they offer it at the wrong time? Did they offer it in the wrong space? Did they, were they wearing the wrong clothes? Because we know that all those details matter because it, it requires precision to stay out of slavery, to stay out of enslavement. Now, is it, is it possible, because we know that some priests were allowed in parts of the tabernacle and other priests weren't, is it possible that this was kind of a power grab? Were they trying to show up in a part of the sanctuary that they're not uh, allowed to show up in? Truth is, we really don't know. All kinds of theories. In fact, the rabbis have about 12 valid theories about what this strange fire is in this text. And it ranges. It runs the gamut. One of the theories is that they were drunk. Because later in chapter 10, it says, do not go into the sanctuary and do your job if you've had wine or 
um, uh, fermented drink. In other words, don't drink on the job. It literally says that down in the rest of chapter 10. So it's possible that they could have been inebriated and that was the strange fire. But I tend to go with another reason that's given. Many believe that one of the things happening in this passage, one of the ways to interpret this passage, is that they had neighbors around them who practiced, practiced worship in a different way. They had neighbors of other religions and other people groups. And they had priests as well. And when they offered incense with fire, they did it a particular way. And some theory is that Nadab and Abihu were borrowing. Now watch this. Watch. Oh. They were borrowing from their culture. They were pulling in from their neighborhood practices that were foreign to this God's way of life and mixing in these cultural practices along with the one mandated practice given by God. Are you seeing what I'm talking about? There is a theory that Nadab and Abihu reached out into their culture around them and pulled in foreign practices and mixed it with the practice of their faith. And to God, it was strange fire because this is not the way I have ordered it. Now, I know that you and I know nothing at all about that kind of practice. I mean, I know that the church in America today in 2019 would never reach out into the culture around us and pull in behaviors and attitudes and practices and expectations from the culture and mix it with our faith and then somehow practice a distorted version of our faith. I know that we would never do those things. But today this text, this old primitive distancing text from Leviticus has me thinking about strange fire. And it has me thinking about the strange fires that we do bring into the practice of our faith that when God looks at it, when Christ looks at it, says, I can't, what? This is not what we talked about. Because see, Jesus had an idea of how this thing ought to play out. <laughs> Jesus said, if any wish to be there my followers, you should deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. This is how it works. In other words, I'm going to show you the way. To the ancients, Leviticus showed them the way. To you and me, Jesus says, I, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, what does that verse mean? The way I treat and interpret that verse is, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Anyone who comes to the Father, no one comes to the Father but through me. I interpret it this way. The Jesus way is the truth about life everything that he did and everything that he said the way he loved who he served the way he emptied out his life and gave it as a ransom for many that is the way that any of his followers who wish to be his followers must follow and anytime you and i pull into the practice of following jesus Anything at all that compromises that way, it is a strange fire. Now, you may not need any help at all 
identifying some of the strange fires that have come into your life. I mean, you may know right away what it is, where the boundary line is, where you've stepped over, or where you've mixed certain practices or attitudes or behaviors that you know Christ has not called you to practice. But on a larger scale, if I may just speak boldly about the church of the 21st century in general, can I tell you that there are a few strange fires that are compromising our very witness in the world. And most of them end with isms. One of the strange fires that we have is unbridled consumerism. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you and I have kids, we raise them up and say, you know what? Uh, little so-and-so, little, little boys, little girls. If you study hard, you finish it with me. If you study hard in school, you, you'll, you do your homework, you'll get good. That's it, grades. And if you get good grades, then you'll graduate and you'll be able to go to a good college that's right and if you really work hard in college you'll graduate and you'll get a load of debt no job no you'll get a, a diploma and, and you get a diploma and if you get a diploma you can build a really attractive resume and if you have an attractive resume you'll get a good and if you get a good job you'll make lots of and then if you have lots of money you can buy lots of stuff things and even though we're like fish swimming in water and don't know that we're swimming in water with this thing, the consumer mind is so in us that at times we will work so hard to succeed and drive and, and become something and all the while forget that according to this way, there is nothing you can do to be loved more than you are already loved. And every striving to God is a strange fire. You know, another strange fire that we have in, in, in the practice of American Christianity is unexamined nationalism. Now, there is a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is that thing that happens in me that courses through my veins when I see a homecoming of someone who has gone to serve and come back to their family. Patriotism is, 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 is the thing, it's the ism in me that, that causes me to be moved when I think about those who have given their lives in service and sacrifice to our country. Patriotism is that thing that, that makes me want to put my hand over my heart when we, when we pledge. It makes me want to stand up when we sing. That's patriotism. But nationalism, brothers and sisters, is what happens when we elevate an affection for any worldly kingdom above our affection for Christ. And when we do that, we run the dangerous game of mixing in the strange fire, a blurred fire, a, a, a foggy smoke between who is it who claims our highest allegiance? One way to ask that question is, are you an American Christian or are you a Christian American? Because it matters where you put the noun and where you put the adjective. As for me and my house, we are American Christians. If we lived in Ethiopia, we would be Ethiopian Christians. Because there is a watershed dividing line where good fire and strange fire can be discerned. And that is 
You and I are citizens of one kingdom only. One kingdom only. And you and I are strangers and aliens of every other kingdom. No matter where we live, no matter where we get our mail, if you follow Jesus Christ, you are members of one kingdom. It is the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And what would happen if you and I as American Christians would recognize in each other the one thing that is strongest is our faith in Jesus. I wonder if it would keep me from judging how you define your American citizenship. I wonder if it would keep me from judging how you define what it means to be an American. I wonder if it would keep me from lobbing verbal rocks at you and you uh, lobbing verbal rocks at me when it comes to issues that divide us if we could recognize we are followers of Christ first and everything else is a distant second. To God, I wonder if the way in which we have merged our lives, merged our unexamined nationalism with our faith, I wonder if it is a strange fire. There's another ism that I think can be a strange fire, and it's unchristlike tribalism. I'm going to circle up my wagons, and everybody inside has value. Everybody outside does not when Christ has broken down every barrier between us. Beloved, in Galatians, Paul says, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no slave or free. And I believe if the Apostle Paul were writing to not the church at, at, at Galatia, but the church at America, you know what I believe he would say? That, that in Christ there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female. There is no Republican or Democrat. There is no libertarian or independent. There is no liberal and conservative. Not in Christ. There is no rich, no poor, no black, no white, no brown. In Christ, Christ is in all and above all and through all. Can you imagine what would happen if we would let that fire ignite within us? An awareness that we are bound together by something that no uh, ideology can tear apart. That's what our country needs today is Christians who truly believe that in Christ there is healing and peacemaking for the world. Yeah. Come on. So what is the point? The point that is that that Nadab and Abihu brought in something that maybe they didn't even know they were doing it wrong. Maybe they didn't even question that this was inappropriate. They brought it in and it led to death. And you and I, if we're not careful, can bring in strange fires that can likewise lead down a path of destruction. But here is the best news of all. Do you know what the best news of this whole story is? that you and I are still talking about this story. And why are we still talking about it? Because God didn't give up on them as a people. God said, now, drag their bodies out of the camp and then do these things. And in doing these things, together we're going to move forward, which introduces the last movement of our time together, which is the universal pattern of grace. God 
has always been up to grace. And here's the universal pattern of grace. God creates something. And then we uncreate it. And then God, by God's good grace, recreates it. So in the very beginning of your Bible, there are these these creation poems that describe God created something beautiful and good. In fact, at the end, he called it very good. And by the end of chapter 6, he said, what have I done? And it's all fallen apart. And through a flood, he uncreates the world. But through Noah and a family, there is Oh, these beautiful images. The water recedes. The dry ground appears. The green things begin to grow, which is a reflection of creation. So there is now a recreation. God is always up to creating. And we uncreate. And God recreates. God did it again in Exodus. They make it to the foot of Mount Sinai. And God and Moses are on the top talking about this great plan in which God will abide with us. And we will abide with God. And at the bottom of the hill... They've already gone and violated the first commandment and they've built a a false god, a golden calf. God created something great and now here they are uncreating it. And by the end of Exodus, he has recreated it once more. And that's exactly what's going on here in the book of Leviticus. He has them pick up and keep moving forward because that is the pattern of our God. God is constantly up to recreating the things that we uncreate. And I just want to know, do you recognize that pattern in your own life? Are you at some place where you recognize the uncreation? And you know it started out good. Maybe it even started out very good in the relationship you're in, the the ministry that you're in, the the endeavor, the job, whatever's happening. And there's this uncreation, uncreation going on. And maybe even in your soul, your spirit, there's something falling apart. And you wonder if it could ever be put back together. And we hear that there is a relentlessness about God's desire to put you back together. For if any are in Christ, there is a new creation. And all the old has passed away. And behold, everything is made new. If you think that you have blown it so much that God is done with you, I quote what I gave you about two weeks ago from, go ahead, throw it up there, from Lisa Bavaria. If you think that you have blown God's plan for your life, rest in this. You, my beautiful friend, are not that powerful. And maybe that's the good news today. You're not as powerful as you think you were. You're not powerful enough to destroy God's love. You're not powerful enough to to run so far that God's long arm of grace can't reach you and bring you home. Today, maybe somebody needs to be re-embraced by the God who refuses to stop creating in you. Let's bow together in prayer. God, We simply want to confess to you that there there is within every one of us some part of us that fears that we've gone too far. And for some of us, we recognize that there have been moments when we absolutely have. But we're not dealing with any normal God with you. But time and again, you reveal through your sacred word that you have not given up on us. 
And that if we yield our lives before you, your grace can can pull us back together in our broken places. Our prayer today is that you would reach down and, and bind up the broken places of any human heart gathered with us today. That you would instill within someone the courage to become vulnerable, to welcome your transformation and live again. We pray those things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.